0: you so much. So I have to tell you, I debated off and on for the past couple of weeks about maybe taking a break from our journey through Mark to just do a a nice, sweet Mother's Day sermon today because the next three stories are just kind of hard to work into a Mother's Day sermon. You've got uh, Jesus being rejected by his hometown, asking the disciples to, or telling the disciples to shake the dust off their feet when they're rejected in a town. And then you've got Herod's wife Herodias asking her daughter to request John the Baptist's head on a platter. Not exactly warm, fuzzy Mother's Day sermon kind of material, is it? But then I thought, you know, we're not living in warm, fuzzy kinds of times today. Last week I mentioned how quickly our society seems to be descending into godlessness and even how those who identify themselves as Christians have largely turned their backs on the the millennia-old traditions and beliefs and values that the Bible so clearly spells out. People are being deceived by the spirit of the age. And I think that's why precisely these stories are perfect for Mother's Day 2021, because we need to understand how we can help combat the crisis of faith in our country, and it starts at home. We need moms and dads who are willing to face up to the reality of the spiritual war that is raging all around us, a a reality that far too many people want to ignore. We need moms and dads who understand and accept the calling that God has given them to be disciple-makers of their children. So these three stories that we are going to look at today in Mark's Gospel work together to give us three key ways that godly parents can raise up their children to send them out into a world that is lost in darkness and to take the love and power of Jesus with them. So let's dive in and look at these three stories. Beginning in Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there, meaning Capernaum. He's been over around Capernaum area on the Sea of Galilee working all these miracles. And he left there and he went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him that even he does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Nazareth is where Jesus grew up. And it's interesting to think about what an example his parents are for us of of this idea of raising up and sending out. Mary and Joseph raised up Jesus and then sent Him out as He embarked on the mission that His Father in Heaven had given Him. But sadly, we see here that when Jesus comes back home in the midst of His ministry and all this great success, the people He's known from His childhood have rejected Him. This is the last time that we will see Jesus in His hometown of Nazareth. He doesn't go back there again. Now, Nazareth was a small place, about 10 acres in size. In fact, if you go to Nazareth today, the Church of the Annunciation, the, Marx, the traditional site where, where Gabriel came and, and spoke to Mary, the entire town of Nazareth sits under that church. So it's not a very big place. Maybe a couple hundred inhabitants at most. And most of them probably were related. You know, it amazes me after being in Thompson for 20 years, I still stumble across people that are cousins to somebody else. And I'm like, really? I didn't know that you were related to each other. So you always have to be careful what you say around people in Thompson. But imagine Nazareth, just a couple hundred people. Certainly everybody there was probably connected in some way. And you talk about rumors and news traveling fast. It really traveled fast in Nazareth. So that's why they're like, hey, isn't this... Uh, Jesus, yeah, that's Mary and Joseph's boy, right? Yeah, it's you know James and, and Joseph's uh, brother, right? Yeah, man, golly, that's a. He isn't isn't he a carpenter? They thought they knew Jesus. Now I want to give the people of Nazareth some credit here. They are asking the right questions. Who is this? What is this he's teaching, and where does he get this authority from? Those are great questions. Those are wise questions, and they show us the first element we need in raising up our children so they can be sent out into the world. And it's this. We need to nurture in them a thoughtful faith to engage a scandalized world. A thoughtful faith to engage a scandalized world. You know, God never asks us to have a blind faith. Biblical faith is a reasonable faith. It stands up to scrutiny. God gave us minds, and He intends us to use them, to understand His Word, to test the spirits, to discern whether somebody is in Christ or not, to discern whether a prophet is speaking truth or not. He gave us minds so that we could understand and defend our faith to those who ask or challenge us. True faith seeks to know. It seeks to understand. You know, the old saying... The Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. That may make a great bumper sticker, but it's not very helpful. And I would say it's not even very admirable. God gave us minds for thinking, for questioning, for reasoning things out. He said to Isaiah, come, let's reason together, says the Lord. The Bible talks about the many convincing proofs that Jesus gave us. Uh, the heavens declare the works of God. The, the firmament shows us His handiwork. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 gives several proofs of the resurrection of Jesus. Our faith is a faith that should drive us to seek the truth. And we need to raise our children to think deeply about these things. To hold up what's going on in the world around them against the gospel. To look through that Christian worldview lens. We need to encourage questions about God and the Bible and faith in Christ. And we need to help our children to read and study His Word all throughout the week, not just in Sunday school and worship. And ask them, what are you reading? What did you hear in in worship today? What did you talk about in Sunday school today? And engage them in those discussions. And listen, if they ask you a question you don't know the answer for, it's okay to say, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that, but let's discover the answer together. We need to encourage our children to ask these questions, to dive deep into these subjects, raising wise, discerning children who know what they believe and why they believe it, who are able not just to say what's right and wrong, good and evil, moral and immoral, but can explain why that is true. It takes asking some basic questions. And the first of that is a question of identity. So we see right here in Nazareth, who is this man? So when when, when you're learning something, when somebody's telling you something, it could be a preacher, a teacher, something you're reading online, ask who is this coming from and are they trustworthy and do they know what they're talking about? Question of identity. The second question we should always ask is, is what is the message here? What's the content of what they're teaching me? And is it true? Is it objectively true? Is it biblical? Is it logical? Is it truth or is it opinion? Is it interpretation or is it real? We should ask those questions about the message. And thirdly, the authority. What is the source of authority here? What is their source of authority? What is their source of truth? What is their background? And and, and if they have an agenda, what is their agenda? We need to examine the identity, the message, and the authority. That's exactly what the people of Nazareth are asking. So they're right in that. But the problem with the people of Nazareth is they didn't like the answers. They were willing to ask the question, but they weren't willing to wrestle with the answer and the implication of that answer. The text says they took offense at him. Now, the Greek word there is scandalizo. Scandalizo is where we get the word scandal. Scandalized. Scandalous comes from that word. It means literally to make somebody stumble. And so they were scandalized by the answer to these questions. Jesus didn't fit the typical picture of a rabbi, much less the Jewish Messiah. After all, he was a hometown boy, right? He's Mary and Joseph's son. He grew up in Joseph's carpentry shop, learning how to, to build and make things. Now, the Greek word carpenter is the word tekton, where we get the word technology, technical technician. It means a skilled worker or craftsman, particularly in that day in wood or stone. So we like to imagine Jesus in Joseph's carpentry shop, learning how to build chairs and tables and working with saws and stuff like that. But in reality, what he probably learned under Joseph was to build houses and walls and wells and these structures out of wood and stone. So in essence, what the people of Nazareth are saying is that they're rejecting Jesus because he didn't go to seminary, he went to tech school. So what does he know about this stuff? And they they reject him. They thought they knew Jesus. They thought they knew his background, his education. And so they couldn't understand where this power and authority was coming from, and they rejected both him and his message. Now Mark, as is typical doesn't give us the content of what Jesus said. Mark doesn't do that very much. There's not a lot of red letters in Mark if you've got a red-letter Bible. So let's look at Luke chapter 7. Luke gives us the content of what Jesus says here in Nazareth. So look with me at, I'm sorry, not Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. So he went up to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And they gave him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he unrolled it and he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now this was a traditional passage of scripture that they knew referred to the Messiah. So he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down because they, they stood to read Scripture, but the rabbi would actually sit to teach. So he sits down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. So like, oh boy, he, he, he can talk well. Wow, that's, he reads Scripture so good. Man, this is a, a great sermon. But then look where they get hung up. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. And Jesus said to them, Jesus understands, he perceives their objections to him. He says, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now what Jesus is saying here, as He's saying, you know, back in Elijah and Elisha's time, there were lots of needs in Israel. But where did God send these two prophets? To Gentiles. Jesus is saying, look, if I come into my own and my own receive me not, if the people of Israel, if my own hometown are going to reject me, I'll take my message to the Gentiles. Well, that got them fired up. Look at verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went his his way they couldn't accept His message. They couldn't accept Him. It was also scandalous to them. And so they, they so fiercely rejected Jesus, they were willing to try to kill Him, and He was unable to do any miracles, save a couple of healings, because of their lack of faith. Now Mark ends this account by saying that Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Now this is only one of two times in all the Gospels that Jesus is ever described as being amazed. Here, he's amazed at the lack of faith of his fellow Jews there in Nazareth, his hometown. In Luke 7, ironically, he's amazed at the faith of a Roman centurion. A Gentile, a pagan, an oppressor. He marvels at his faith and marvels at the lack of faith of his own people. Many people today turn from Jesus and reject biblical truth not because it's unreasonable illogical, not because it's been disproven. They turn away from it simply because they don't like the answers. Like the people of Nazareth, they take offense at Jesus, at His gospel. They're scandalized by the message of the cross and by the moral and ethical standards that are clearly spelled out in the Word of God. Listen, we have to raise our children with a healthy, biblical worldview so they can think critically about the competing messages that they are going to hear from an increasingly scandalized world, scandalized by the Christian faith. We've got to teach them to weigh those competing messages against Scripture. We need to prepare them to do as Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asked you to give the reason, the reason for the hope that you have. And we're to do this with gentleness and respect. We need to instill in our children, to nurture in them a thoughtful faith in the face of a scandalized world. Let's continue on in chapter 6, verse 6. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. So he leaves Nazareth. He goes around to all the other villages in the area. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over the evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. So they went out and they preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So the second principle that we see here, the second key in helping to raise up our children to send them out is we need to equip them to lovingly share gospel truth with a skeptical world. I know it's a difficult balance to strike. We we don't want our children to be of the world, to be worldly but we know that as Christians we have to be in the world. We don't want to hide our lamps under a basket. We want to put them on a stand so that we can shine the truth and light of Jesus Christ to a dark world. We want to nurture in our children a thoughtful faith so they can withstand the criticism of the world, but at the same time, we want them to lovingly share His truth with the world with gentleness and respect. Jesus, in a way, raised up these apostles, right? He raised them up. He he trained them in the real-life laboratory of ministry. They heard Him preach and teach. They saw Him heal and cast out demons. They witnessed Jesus come up against those who misunderstood Him and who rejected Him, and they saw how Jesus dealt with that. Well, now it's time for them to go out and to have some real-life, hands-on experience. So Jesus has taken off the training wheels and He has sent them out. And there's a lot to unpack in Jesus' instructions here. But as we think about them, let's think about equipping our young people to engage a skeptical world with the truth of the gospel. And there are a few principles that we can glean from Jesus' instructions. The first is the principle of teamwork. He sends them out two by two. And He does it for two reasons. One for encouragement and one for endorsement. Jesus knew they would need each other out there to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, as Hebrews 4 says, or as the writer of Ecclesiastes so beautifully paints for us, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. One of the greatest blessings that we can give our children, moms and dads, is the gift of a church family. To raise them up in a church community, a family of faith, where they see men and women who love Jesus and love them. And though they're not perfect, they see these people striving to live out their faith in Jesus, striving to be faithful in following Him. Men and women who can teach them and mentor them and reinforce in them what you're teaching them at home. A family of faith where they've got friends, other boys and girls that can grow up with them and can help them model cross likeness for them and, 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 and have their backs and give them that strength of, of numbers and encouragement to know that they're not alone at school, they're not alone on the ball field. We need each other now more than ever for encouragement, to know that we've got each other's back. But secondly, for endorsement. Because in the Jewish tradition, it took two witnesses to establish a testimony. So if you're going to accuse somebody of something, you had to have at least two corroborating witnesses before you could even bring the accusation. So by having a partner, they were able to gain a better hearing among those that Jesus was sending them to. And in the same way, I believe we can reach more people and be more effective when we witness together, when we serve together. Teamwork. But the second principle we can glean is one of spiritual authority. They're called apostles here. The word apostle means somebody who is sent out with authority. Authority to represent. And Jesus called these twelve and sent them as apostles in a very unique way, at a unique moment in history. They, in in a specific way, could represent Jesus. After His ascension, and the birthing of the church, they were His representatives. We're not, in a historical sense, apostles, but in a similar way, we're also sent out, aren't we? We're given authority. We've been commissioned by Jesus to go into the world and represent Him to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. And as parents, that charge begins at home with our children. Jesus told us in the Great Commission, both in Acts 1 and Matthew 28, that He has given us His power, His presence, and His authority. Paul sums all that up in 2 Corinthians 5.20 when he calls us ambassadors for Christ. He says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He goes on to say that God has entrusted to us this ministry of reconciliation. So as we disciple our children... We need to help them understand that as followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives within them and gives them the power and the authority of Christ to help people in need, to speak the truth, to share the gospel, to pray for and with people, to serve others in His name. What a great affirmation that is. Amen? What a powerful sense of identity to know that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And with that sense of royal identity as ambassadors also comes a powerful sense of security. That's the third principle we glean here, security. He told them to take nothing for the journey, just a few small things. Jesus expected His disciples to trust God to provide their needs and and to humbly receive with gratitude the Jewish hospitality He knew that they would encounter. They weren't to act like beggars. He didn't want them going door-to-door looking for the best house to stay in, the, the best food to eat. No, He wanted them to trust God to lead them to just the right homes where God wanted them to be and to accept those homes and meals with gratitude even if it wasn't the softest bed or the most delicious meal they'd ever eaten. Listen, y'all, we need to help our children develop that same kind of trusting dependence and humble gratitude for the shepherd's provision as He supplies all of our needs. And you know how we teach our children that best? And this, is, this, is, this is hard moms and dads, by our example, by our example. Now listen, if you're like me, you're guilty of worrying. You're guilty of getting a little fretful and frustrated about certain things, and maybe your kids kind of see and hear that and know that that you're stressed and worried. Or maybe, like me, sometimes you complain right? things aren't good enough, You know, you get frustrated with the way things are. You start to complain. You're not very grateful sometimes. Listen, moms and dads, we have got to work on us first. But we have got to learn how to trust God's provision, have a spirit of gratitude, so we can instill that in our children, that powerful sense of security in our Good Shepherd. And finally, there's this principle of conviction. He tells them sometimes you're going to have to shake the dust Off your feet. Jesus was preparing them to face the reality that not everyone was going to accept them. Not everyone was going to be thrilled with their ministry or believe their message. Yeah, they're going to find homes and towns that are going to willingly accept them, but they're going to find homes and towns that are going to reject them and, and, and abuse them and speak badly of them. They've already seen this happen with Jesus. They just saw this happen with Jesus in his hometown, with people he's known since he was a kid. And you've got to know they're thinking, okay, if Jesus can be rejected by His hometown so much they want to kill Him, what about us? How can we expect anything less? In fact, Jesus says this in John chapter 15. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master, so if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Now, when I was a kid, I can remember hearing the preacher preach on that or reading that in the Bible or maybe hearing it in Sunday school, I can remember coming across that and thinking, whoa, that's such a foreign idea, right? I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff that happens to people back then. That, that's the kind of stuff that happens to people over there in other parts of the world. I never as a kid thought I would ever find an application of this for me, right? I mean, that, that, in America, that just doesn't happen. People aren't going to hate me for believing in Jesus. But man, how times have changed in the past 30 some odd years. And, and I'm not going to quote to you the studies and the statistics. You know them all. It's evident all around us. The hostility toward the Word of God and His church. The mockery of traditional Christian belief in our media. The smearing of people's names. The, the cancel culture. And why? Because we hold on to 2,000-year-old orthodox Biblical ethics of morality and values upon which the very freedoms and advancements and values of Western civilization have been built. We're not the ones who have changed. We're not the radical ones in our culture, though we're the ones painted that way. We stand firmly on the Word of God as the church has done for two millennia. And the Word of God has not changed. Now, I understand the desire to shelter our children from the evils of this world and from the growing perversion and violence and lawlessness in our country. And and yes, there's a wisdom in when and how we expose our children to these things, but we have to prepare them for the world that they will face. More than any generation of Americans before them, our children need resiliency. They need confidence. They need conviction. They need to know why they believe what they believe and be able to defend it. We need to teach them to share those beliefs, those values, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to give the reason for the hope that they have, to hold out the word of life and to shine like stars in the universe. We need to help them know how to speak the truth in love, to give the reason for the hope they have with gentleness and respect. But we also need to teach them that there's a time when you just have to shake the dust off your feet and move on. Now, that expression came around in first century uh, Jewish culture in reference to Gentiles. So, you're leaving Gentile territory and and you are literally shaking the dust off your feet. I don't want to bring a a, a bit of that. You know, it might be like if you go to Alabama, right, and you come back into Georgia, you shake a little bit of that off your feet, right? I'm sorry. Or Tennessee, take your pick, whatever. Football's right around the corner, y'all. That was the idea. Well, Jesus takes that expression and uses it in a different way. He's actually using it to temper our tendency to lash out in anger, to pass judgment on those who reject or persecute us. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't curse them, pray for them. I think about the story where James and John earned their nicknames the Sons of Thunder. Some people weren't exactly receptive of Jesus and James and John wanted to call down fire and brimstone and lightning on them. Jesus rebuked them for that. Were they any better than those people? No. Jesus never wants us to write people off or close the door on someone as if they could never come around to the truth. But at the same time, we aren't to give what is holy to the dogs nor cast our pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear us to pieces. In other words, we need wisdom to know when to walk away and when to stop spending our limited time and energy on those who have clearly rejected us and our message. And that's not to say we condemn them. It's not to say we write them off as a hopeless case. We pray for them. We love them. We give them over to Jesus. We walk away shaking the dust off our feet because we trust that God is still there working in their life we continue to live out a gospel witness in front of them. Don't let it discourage you when that happens. Don't let it get you down. Be at peace with the fact that this world hated Jesus. It's going to hate us too. This world is not our home. We're just traveling through. We've got to have that mindset that, that lets us keep our head held high so we can move on to share the truth with the next person God brings into our path. We need to nurture in our children a thoughtful faith because we live in a world that increasingly sees our values and beliefs as scandalous. We need to equip them to engage a skeptical world with the truth and love of God. And finally, we need to instill in them the hope of triumph over a secular world. The hope of triumph. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this next story because it's pretty tragic. It's a pretty horrific tale. But I want to read it and then draw this one implication for us as Christian parents. So let's start in verse 14. King Herod heard about this for Jesus' name to become well known. And some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that's why miraculous powers are at work with him. And others said, he is Elijah. And others claimed, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. Now, Mark employs something here that we see a lot in movies and TV shows these days. That's a flashback. So from here on, we're going to see a flashback. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. And he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. So when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias, her name was Salome, she came in and she danced. She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom She went out and she said to her mother, "'What shall I ask for?' "'The head of John the Baptist,' she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, "'I want you to give me right now "'the head of John the Baptist on a platter.'" because they were at a banquet. So she wanted John's head served up. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. In other words, he wanted to say face in front of all of his powerful friends. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, here's the implication. Moms, no matter how difficult things may be going, no matter how much you think you might have lost your cool or blown it, no matter how much you think maybe you're not the best mom in the world, you're a better mother than Herodias. You can always hang your hat on that. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. That's not the takeaway here, but, but it is true. Now, the takeaway is this. John had the resilient conviction in his identity as God's prophet. In the truth of the message he was proclaiming and the urgency of the mission that God had given him. You know, like Jesus, John was raised up by godly parents. He was raised up and sent out on a very specific mission to prepare the world for Christ's coming. And how did that end for John? Imprisoned. Beheaded. For nothing more than refusing to back down from speaking truth to those in power. Now, Herod Antipas was appointed mainly by Rome as one of the kings, one of the the rulers of of the Jews. But Herod was no Jew. He didn't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. And Herod and his administration were as secular as they come. He was all about his own power and wealth and making his own name great. That's all Herod cared about. His was a world of wild parties, sordid affairs political power plays. He even married his own sister-in-law, who also happened to be his niece. So, ugh. John the Baptist had to call him out for this wickedness, for this sexual perversion, for the mockery that they were making of marriage and family, and John died for that. Now, our world, sadly, is not that different from the world of Herod and John the Baptist. Our culture is growing more secular by the day. And those who hold the greatest power and influence in our country, politically, culturally, academically, economically, they are advancing this secularism with a religious fervor. It has become a religion to them. You know, in history, I'm probably, you've probably learned about the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. Well, people today, right now, are calling this rise of secularism in our culture the Great Awakening. That's what they're calling it. And they talk about it in religious language. And their gospel is called critical race theory and intersectionality, which is a perverted view of the world. It is a competing worldview to the traditional biblical worldview. Make no mistake about that. And what they call social justice is not justice at all. But that's for another sermon and another day. The powers that be hated John for preaching God's moral law of holiness, especially against sexual sin and the redefining of family. And our culture hates us for the same reasons. But there's hope, y'all. There's hope. Because Jesus Christ has triumphed over the world. Amen? He's triumphed. Listen, they tried to silence Jesus too. They killed Him, but He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. He triumphed over the powers that be through the cross. And He pointed out their shame. They tried to shame Him, and He turned the tables on them. Yes, we may face persecution. Our children are likely going to grow up in a world in which they will have to deal with an irrational hatred for what is good and pure and holy and just and right. Our culture is trying to redefine everything. What is good is evil. What is evil is good. And that's why, moms and dads, we have to answer this call with all seriousness and conviction. This is why our children need more from us than just to get them into a good school or help them get a car or a good job. They need us to nurture in them a thoughtful, robust Faith, that's the greatest gift that we could ever give them. They need us to equip them to engage our lost world with the loving truth of God's Word. And they need us to instill in them a firm and unwavering hope like an anchor in the storm that in the end we will triumph in Christ. Jesus is coming back someday. And when He does, He's going to make all things new. He's going to make all things new. We need to live today with that end in mind. It's not about the moment. It's about what's to come. But listen, it begins, first of all, with a moment. It begins with that moment that you turn from sin and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Listen, you cannot give to your children what you don't have. And if you don't have a thoughtful faith, if you don't have a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, that's where you need to start today, moms and dads. Maybe today is the day that you need to give your heart to Jesus. You need to come to Him in faith and trust and say, Jesus, I'm not good enough, but You are. Forgive me of my sins. Live in me and help me to follow You so I can lead my family to follow You. Maybe today is the day of salvation for you. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you know you've given your heart to Jesus, but you've never publicly proclaimed it. You've never passed through the waters of baptism. Listen, if you can't stand up for Jesus in a baptistry in a church... How in the world can you stand up for Jesus in this world? It begins as a follower of Jesus with passing through these waters and declaring that this world is not your home and that you are no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. You've died to this world and you've been risen to walk in the newness of life in Jesus Christ. Maybe today you want to come and say, David, I need to be baptized. Maybe for you today you need to come and join this church family. You know you've been worshiping here. You've been coming here. You know this is where... You want your children or your grandchildren to be raised, or this is where you want to help children and grandchildren to know and love and follow Jesus Christ. You want to be a part of this family of faith that will have your back, that will encourage you, and will help multiply your influence in this world. We would love for you to come and unite with our church family. There's another way you might respond today, and it's one that I confess and repent of the fact that I have not made as much of this as I should. And it's a problem in churches all around our country. And that is maybe God is calling you into Christian ministry. I don't talk about that enough. And we need more young men and women stepping into ministry today than ever. Because there's a dearth of pastors and worship leaders and youth ministers and children's ministers and missionaries. There's a dearth of them. There are more churches today without pastors than at any time in my lifetime if not longer, because the pastors aren't out there. Christian colleges are having to shut their doors. Seminaries are struggling because our young people aren't stepping out to say, I want to follow Jesus in full-time ministry or in bi-vocational ministry. Why is that? I don't think it's because God has stopped calling people. It's because we've stopped responding. It's because pastors haven't been preaching it enough, haven't been encouraging it enough. It's because moms and dads are a little nervous about it. You want your kid to go to college and get a good job and have a stable job and make a lot of money, right? Doesn't necessarily happen in ministry. None of that does. I know my parents were nervous. They were supportive but nervous when I told them that I was, God was calling me into ministry. Maybe there's somebody here that God has been working in your heart. And you may not know exactly what He's calling you to do, but you want to say, David, wherever God leads, I'll go. We're going to sing that song in just a moment as our worship leaders come on up. Wherever He leads, I'll go. When I gave my life to Jesus in full-time ministry, when I surrendered to that call on my life, I was in seventh grade. I didn't know exactly what that meant. I didn't know, know I'd be standing here today. But the hymn of invitation that Sunday that I surrendered was wherever He leads, I'll go. And that has always been my prayer. Wherever you lead, I'll go. When I came to Thompson 20 years ago, I don't know where that is, Lord, but wherever you lead, I'll go. And when the church called me to become lead pastor, God helped me understand that sometimes wherever means right where you are. Sometimes it means wherever you lead, I'll stay. But the point is you've got to answer God's call. What is He calling you to do today? Will you say yes? Let's stand and pray. Father... Thank you for the men and the women, for the mothers, the grandmothers, the mentors in our life, the fathers, the grandfathers, the the male mentors in our life, God, as Jay prayed earlier, that have made us who we are. They've instilled in us that faith. Father, we see generations coming up and it's frightening, Lord, to see how many of them are falling away from the faith, how many of them aren't interested in Your Word, in Your church, in serving You. Father, may we not become lax, but may we be more emboldened, may we be more burdened, may we be more intentional in helping the next generation to have a robust, strong, thoughtful faith that can withstand the forces of this world and that can shine the hope and love in, with, of Jesus Christ with gentleness and respect and in a way that is appealing to it shows people that there is a better way. And the claims of Christ are true. And they will change our lives in this world. Father, so many people look to so many other things in this world to solve the problems. But the root problem is sin. And the only solution to sin is your saving grace and the transforming power of your spirit. If there's anybody here today that needs to experience that today, I pray they would come. If there's somebody that needs to come for baptism to unite with this church family or to surrender to your call, to go wherever you lead and to serve your kingdom and your church. I pray that they would step out in faith right now and be obedient to your Spirit's leading. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.